You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. So if you will, please stand with me as we stand on the solid rock of God's holy word. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story, those first five verses setting the stage for an incredible story of your power, your ability to save, your ability to change lives. But we are going to see, Lord, there is also the terrible power of sin in this passage. We see the darkness that it brings into the world, and I pray that we will be able to sense in this passage What you are saying to us, Holy Spirit, about our walk, our journey, our lives. Teach us, Lord, from your word we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let me start out with a word here that's a pretty pretty, uh, complicated word. It's an ugly sounding word. It's the word encroachment. Encroachment. Not a nice sounding word at all. Uh, To encroach is to uh, step over a boundary line, to get a little too close, or to start claiming someone else's territory. In the spiritual realm, I want you to get this. This is important for us today. I think it's an important way to understand this text. This is a text telling us about a moment in history, but it's showing us what happens when the people of God get serious about spiritual things. You see, God's people are called to a ministry of encroachment. We are called to step over the boundary lines Satan has established. We want to get close to hurting souls and claim those souls for Christ. Now, I want you to get this idea in your head. The reason why we are sharing the gospel 8,400 times is because we need to have a clear focus about what we're called to do as Christians. And when we are willing to do the work of God, that means we are saying, I am willing to encroach or to go into enemy territory. Your friends that do not know Jesus, those friends that are in the grip of their sins, Satan has for all intents and purposes, claimed their hearts and wants their souls. And it's our privilege to encroach on that territory. The devil cannot have that heart. We will not let the devil have those hearts. We want to charge into that situation and make a difference in the name of Jesus. But here's the deal. As I show you this passage and unfold it for you, what you begin to see is is that the word of God clearly teaches that when the church encroaches on Satan's territory, on the devil's uh, territory, the devil pushes back and the pushback is deadly. Go back to the text with me and notice right out of the gate, this pushback results in the death of James, uh, the brother of John. He loses his life. 
This man, Herod Antipas, sees that there is uh, success here. He is able to get away with it. And so he puts Peter in prison with the purpose, with the design of putting him to death as well. So we see that these Christians are standing up for the truth, they're encroaching on the devil's territory, and now we're starting to see the price that the leaders of the church are paying. James is gone. He is killed with the sword. That is a euphemism for he had his head cut off, just in case you're missing the nuance here. That's the price he paid for Jesus. And then we have Peter. Peter now is uh, ostensibly the leader. Jesus sort of handed the keys to him, literally and figuratively. And Peter is now in danger of losing his life. The only thing that is keeping him alive is the reality that there's a feast, a festival of the Jews, the Passover, and it was against the rules to kill somebody during that time. That's the only thing keeping him alive. It's also worth mentioning that here in the book of Acts, in the 12th chapter, we've got a lot of more chapters to go, all the way to 28. We have a bunch more texts to go, but this is the last specific mentioning of the church in Jerusalem. From this period forth, the mother church is no longer the focus. All the children churches become the focus. It shows us that in the kingdom of God, good churches are always thinking about their children and planting out. The idea is, is not to bring the emphasis on us, but to lift up others and to push into enemy territory, planting churches, doing mission work, always looking for the next area where God is at work. God is at work here, but what we do by planting churches everywhere else is we make sure that that work continues. We pass on our DNA, our love for worship, our love for prayer, our love for theology, our love for missions and ministry. We pass that on to other churches so that the kingdom can grow. Before we dive into the particulars of this text, though, let me just say this. Christians are meant to stand up for Jesus, but Christians who stand up for Jesus stand out from the culture they live in. And subsequently, when a person stands out, they become a natural target. So listen to me. One of the things I want to be very real with you about, okay? Hear this. If we are going to encroach into the devil, if we're going to go into the devil's territory, there is a price to pay. Standing up for Jesus is not a neutral thing. It puts you on one side. It puts you on the side against the devil. And when you are on the side against the devil and you stand out in the culture, you become a target. If we are going to be faithful in doing what God wants, we will have to experience difficulties, challenges, setbacks, and sufferings. That's the way it works for those who are willing to serve Jesus. I believe with all my heart that the church today in the West, the American church, the American church is going to have to get this in their minds that it is okay to suffer if we're doing it for the right reasons, if we're doing it for the kingdom of God. What we're going to see here is, is that prayer is the focus of all ministry. It's what makes a difference. It's what unpacks the power of the Spirit of God. And when the power of the Spirit of God is unpacked in the church and then in the community, incredible things begin to happen. I want you to know this. We can be the best members of our community. We can do good deeds left and right. But if we are going to take back enemy territory, there will be a fight on our hands and we must have the power of God going with us. 
So let's uh, jump right into this and see right out of the gate, violent hands. Verses one through four. And here's a question for you. Are you willing to serve Jesus and suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to serve Jesus and suffer for Jesus? The American church has been very comfortable with the concept of doing good deeds, serving Jesus. But the American church has for a long time lost its way when it comes to suffering for Jesus. It serve and it suffer. Those two things do go hand in hand as we see here in the text. Verse 1 introduces us to a man by the name of Herod. I want us to get the right Herod here. There are several Herods in this part of uh, the Bible and in this part of biblical history. We can think of Herod the Great. Okay, think about the infancy narratives of Jesus. This is the guy who who tries to take out uh, Jesus before he ever uh, really gets into the world. Okay, that's Herod the Great. This is his grandson. Now, I would like to tell you that his grandson's an all right kind of guy, but he's not. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was raised in an environment of chaos. Herod the Great and and his uh, children were all raised in this very violent time, even in their families. Uh, The the, the fathers and the mothers were, were sometimes even executing their own children, okay? If you grow up in an environment like that, I mean, I'm not a therapist, but my guess is you're gonna have issues, okay? So he had some issues. At age seven, this man and his mother, who was a Jewish woman, she was of the Hebrew people, they moved to Rome to get away from the chaos. And because of their wealth and privilege, they are put in the same circle as the emperors of Rome. In fact, this guy, Herod Agrippa, was raised in the same environment in Rome as two future Roman emperors, Claudius and Nero. Now, I'm telling you all this because I want you to realize that Herod Agrippa is an unusual person in history, because, especially in Hebrew history, because he had all the right connections. He had the connections at Rome to the highest level. He knew the very most powerful people in the world. When he moves back into Israel, he immediately knows how to play the political game. He was very gifted, and he began to build consistency and a a, a constituents within the Hebrew nation. He started doing what they wanted to do. He knew from his Jewish mother what it took to connect with the people. So he was powerful. He was backed by powerful. He was a great politician. In fact, I'll show you a little bit later one of the ways that the text shows us how effective of a leader he really was. This was a very gifted man. But notice what he does with all those gifts. It says in verse 1 that he decided to lay violent hands on some who belonged to the church. The church was standing up for Jesus and they became targets. They stood out as targets. The leaders of the Jewish people saw the church in Jerusalem growing fast and they wanted to bring it to a quick end. And Herod Antipas knew that the way to kill a movement was to take out the leaders. Chop off the head and the body dies. That's why James literally had his head cut off and Peter was next. All you're seeing in the text here is pure power politics. Here is a successful man who could bring consensus, who could bring peace and love, but instead of hearing the message of love and peace in the name of Jesus, He decides to take out those who follow Jesus. Why does suffering like this have to take place? 
Why do these good Christians have to uh, feel the, the, the wrath of violent hands? Christian, I want you to know that serving Jesus can be a complicated thing. There's a woman author in our, our, our world today. She's a great, great thinker, and uh, her books I recommend from time to time. She's, a, as I've been sharing with people, she's a tough person to read, but she's really, really good. Rosaria Butterfield is her name, uh, former uh, professor at Syracuse University, an academic that God got a hold of. She says this, people will hate you for following the God of the Bible, now, I want to put this up. I, I thought this was worth putting up for you guys. Uh, you can take a picture of this, and I won't even get on to you for it. It's a really good quote, and it's a, it's a pretty good book. But I want you to see this, because there is a reason why this quote is good. I, I think I've already told you that we're going to encroach on enemy territory, and so that's going to cause trouble. But notice the specific thing she mentions. You see, it's one thing to say you're a Christian. Most people will just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, well, yeah, you're mostly harmless. But if you are a Christian who is following the God of the Bible and standing up for the word of God and not backing down from the truth of God's word, you become a threat to the culture and therefore the culture will hate you. If we just go with the flow, we won't cause any problems. But if we stand up for the God of the Bible, we will stand out and we will be targets. The early Christians were targets because they were preaching the word faithfully. They were allowing the word of God to guide every bit of their lives. Church, if we are that kind of church, and I pray we are, if we are the kind of church that's going to put God's word in the top part of our, our, our lives, if we're going to make it the priority, we will become a target. People will hate you for following the God of the Bible. People will not hate you if you're just following a lesser God. Everybody's following a lesser God one way or another. But you start following the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you'll get all over some people. Some people will get upset. So friends, just know, standing up for Jesus is to stand out for Jesus. And when we stand out for Jesus, there can be violent hands coming against us. The second point is this. There is power in prayer. When you pray, do you believe that God will answer? The faithful prayers... Uh, of a saint like you uh, can avail much. You can do a lot of great things when you pray. James tells us in chapter five, church, we have to start believing that. When facing a high price for our devotion to Jesus, what do we do? Well, the early church's example is pray. When we are hurting, we must pray. So let's just pause for a minute. Hear me. We need to pray if your heart is hurting, if you are facing difficulties, if that person you're witnessing to seems to be turning against you, remember you need to pray. And notice the word earnest, earnest prayer meetings. Now, we understand why these prayer meetings were earnest. James had lost his life and Peter was about to lose his life. You get earnest when things get serious. Some people might call this like a foxhole kind of faith. But listen, if you've ever been in a really difficult situation, you understand what I'm talking about. There are times when it just feels like the world is collapsing around you, and that's when you know you have to pray. There's nothing wrong with admitting that. So the church is involved in earnest prayer, and then this happens. Notice what happens in the text. This is incredible. Beginning in verse 5, we see that Peter's in prison. The church is praying earnestly. And now verse 6. Let me just read to you verses 6 through 11. It's a fascinating story. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, 
That very night, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. The angel, I love this, I was joking in the first service, we know Peter um, was a Baptist because he was asleep, and it took an angel to strike him, to wake him up, like some of you. Uh, He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Notice this. He did not know uh, that what was being done by the angel was real. So what did he think? That it was a dream, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened uh, for them of its own accord. Do you see this? This is the work of God. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, oh, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So you see what's going on here. It's an incredible miracle. This was a moment when Peter woke up and realized that something was going on, but it just seemed too good to be true. Peter was no Houdini, uh, but he certainly was pretty good, it seemed, to be uh, getting out of jail. Now, if we rewind the tape, we remember that this has happened before, that Peter's been miraculously delivered from jail. So Herod Agrippa was no dummy. So what does he do? Well, it looks like in the text that he gets 16 of his guards probably Roman guards, probably really good at guarding people. And he gets them and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have 16 guys in four-man shifts doing four hours a time. And you're going to be chained to this. Two of you are chained to him and two of you are at the door. That's a lot of people guarding a preacher. Now, I mean, it makes me feel good that at least somebody thinks every once in a while a preacher can do something, okay? So that's pretty cool. They thought the preacher could do something, that he had some kind of gift, some kind of Houdini-like power. But nonetheless, was it good enough? Did that keep Peter down? No, the angel of the Lord comes in. Uh, The chains are broken. The man is delivered somehow, some way. You see, God does big things when God's people are praying. He is big enough to meet the needs. I want to show you this quote. Notice this, prayer is how we learn to lean on God. This little book on prayer by John, we're going to call him Johnny O because Rich and I spent five minutes this morning trying to figure out how to pronounce that last name and we still don't know how to do it. All right, so Johnny O says, prayer is how we learn to lean on God. Now, quit laughing and just look at the quote. The quote is good, the last name is terrible, okay? Munis ain't much better. But anyway, uh, prayer is how we learn to lean on God. So the early church is already learning that there are things they're going to face that are way bigger than them. That if they're going to be able to do the Great Commission, they have to lean on God. And so they earnestly pray for God to show up, and he shows up. What a beautiful thing. Prayer is a way we learn to lean on God. Now I want to pause for just a moment and say this. There are times when we read a story of this caliber and we say, okay, this is something that God did in the book of Acts, but does he still do it today? F.F. Bruce wrote a commentary on the book of Acts and he was one of the great uh, Bible commentators of his day and he included this story and I found it very interesting that he would include a story like this in a academic text, but he did. So let me share it with you. It caught my attention. So there's this story that comes from the land of Tibet and 
Tibet is one of those countries in the world where preaching the gospel is illegal. And there was a man, his last name was Singh, and he was uh, preaching the gospel in the town square. He was arrested, and they threw him in a well, literally a well in the ground that was already filled with bodies of others who had preached Jesus. He was in that well for three days, and on the third night when he was expecting to die, he heard a key in the lock, and he saw that the uh, cover of the well came off. A rope came down. This man, when he was thrown down into the well, he had injured his arm, and so he couldn't grab the rope, but it had, a, it had a loop in the bottom that he was able to put his foot in, and someone pulled him up and out of the well into safety. When he got up, there was nobody there, but he was free. Not only was he free, but as he breathed in, this is the story told, when he breathed in the, the, the night air, his body felt rejuvenated. Even his arm didn't seem to hurt. And so here's a guy who's been down in a well for three days for preaching Jesus. What does he do? He catches the next train and gets out of town, right? Nope. He goes right back to the same place where they arrested him and preaches Jesus again. The town fathers, the leaders of the town go and say, how did you get out? Who let you out? And he said, God let me out. And they didn't believe that, so they began to do an inquiry. Who, who did this? Who let him out? They said, well, somebody had to have the key. The key clearly was used, and the lock clearly came off, so where was the key? Well, the main leader of the town looked on his belt, and it had been there the whole time. He had the key. The key had never left his side. God delivered this brother. Now, that's just a story, and from the mission field, we might hear hundreds of other stories like that. I'm here to tell you, when the church prays, God moves, and sometimes he will deliver us, and sometimes he won't, but the point is this, God moved, and I love this story, because if you look, um, this prayer is answered, and the people who prayed this prayer are having a hard time believing it. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, Peter, he knew where to go. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. This is a Baptist church. You are out of your mind. That's a miracle. Those things don't happen. Uh, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying it is his angel. But notice this, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Now, here's what's beautiful about this. God opened up a prison door, took off the chains of imprisonment, got Peter outside of it and into freedom. He goes to the church, and he can't get in the church. The church door is locked, and he has to sit there and knock. Now, it's kind of a funny story, but I think there is a deeper meaning here. When God begins to work and answering prayers, some of the people who have to be convinced the most are the ones who did the praying. Church, we don't pray for nothing. We don't pray with a hope in a prayer. We pray believing. This passage of scripture is teaching us to pray bold prayers and expect God to do bold things. We are a praying church. It is part of who we are. And church, I want to tell you, there is never a moment of your life wasted when you pray. When you pray, you can move heaven and earth. I'll tell you this. I've never seen two brothers praying together and arguing at the same time. You can't do it. If you're going to pray to God, you will certainly put down your arguments. You will begin to join your hearts together and God will do great things. 
I believe, in earnest prayer. And here we see in this beautiful story how prayer breaks chains. But the story does have a difficult element. Look at verse 20. Uh, we begin to see that, uh, actually, before verse 20, look at verses 18 and 19. Uh, Peter is free, but because of that, the soldiers lose their lives. Now, when they came and there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, I just want to pause. This isn't a main part of the story, but I want you to know when there is sin in the camp, innocent people suffer. Not just the Christians, but in this instance, 16 guards who did nothing wrong, suffered. And, and we can say, well, why didn't God deliver them? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know this. Those guards didn't die because God didn't love them. They died because of the fallen heart, the fallen condition of a man named Herod Agrippa. There is evil in this world that does great harm and great damage in the world. The wages of sin is death. Yes, your death, but sometimes your sin causes pain and suffering in other people. In fact, it causes pride and death, our third point. The question is this, are you able to pay sin's price? Asked and answered, no, you're not. Are you able to pay sin's price? No, you are not. You will pay for your sin. The wages of sin is death, but we believe there is a gift from God that leads to eternal life. But when we look at this passage in verse 20, we start to see that Herod is a person of great pride I was thinking about this. I'm not much of a country music guy, but uh, Johnny Cash's song, God's Gonna Cut You Down. Here's what it says, one line, you can run for a long time. You can run for a long time, but sooner or later, God's gonna cut you down. Now, when you listen to that, that song and you are a person who loves people and you're a loving person, you say, wow, that sounds very judgmental. That doesn't seem right. Listen to this. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. You can run for a long time. You can run for a long time. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. Actually, that's pretty good theology, Johnny Cash. It's pretty good. Now, I want you to notice something here. I told you earlier that Herod Agrippa was a very talented politician. I don't want to get into the politics of, of uh, Tyre, Sidon, and Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, because quite frankly, I know you don't care. But if you look at those first couple of verses I read to you, verses 20 and 21, what you're missing there is, is a major political coup, a big deal, where a, a, a king of Judea, a king of what we would call Israel today, develops enough power to build consensus with the neighbors to the north and makes a peace treaty, treaty with a group of people that, even to this day, that kind of peace never happens. This is a subtle way of telling us in the text that this was a very, very crafty man. He was smart, he was rich, he was powerful, and that made him prideful. And so everybody says, wow, this guy is the best, he's the greatest. 
Even when he speaks, it's the voice of a God and not of man. And Herod began to believe the propaganda and in his heart believed that he was a great guy and God struck him down. One of the things I want to warn you about, it's one of the things that sends so many people to hell, is pride. Now, very few, if any of you in this room, are going to have the kind of power and authority that Herod had in this world. But you will have your own little kingdom. You'll have your house and your home and your job. Maybe you'll do very good at your job. Maybe people will say you're the best at what you do. And sometimes we begin to believe those kinds of things and put the emphasis and the focus on our own hearts. And that causes us to be very deaf to the word of God. I know many people who over the years will sit in church and and believe that because they do a lot of good deeds that that's enough to get them to heaven. And then the preacher says, no, good deeds aren't enough. You need to believe in Jesus, the grace of God alone, the mercy of God alone that comes through the cross will save you. And people say, wait a second, all my life I thought I needed to be a good person. And what it takes to get to heaven is to do more good things than bad things. But this preacher is telling me that that's not good enough, that the only way I can get to heaven is to believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. I don't like that. I want to go to heaven my way. And that kind of pride from good people who want to do good, who, who have no problem with the majority of, of the preaching they would hear from this pulpit. They would, they would agree with the Bible. They would say that the Bible has good teachings and is a powerful message. They would agree with so much of, of what we say. But at the end of the day, pride leads to death. Don't persist in such sin. Don't let pride sends you to a devil's hell. But the passage ends on a high note. I'm thankful for that. Look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. God used these difficult times, James's death and Peter's imprisonment, his release from prison, the word of God increased and multiplied. God wants to do great things through his people. God can use us even in our pain to do great things. God will work through our pain if we pray and remain faithful. This story is a reminder of what God can do. Listen, I know that I am limited in what I can do. I know you are limited in what you can do. But I'm begging you and pleading with you to think about what God could do through us if we will surrender ourselves to prayer. If we will believe in God and his power, he will set us free from the chains of sin. He will take away our pride, which is killing us and and leading us to a, a, a death that is eternal. God is speaking. God wants you to turn from those sins and live. God is wanting us as a church to build the kingdom of God for his glory. Will you surrender? Will you come to Jesus? Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.